What episode is this? Is it is it 18? Yeah. Let's see. We got to pull it up on iTunes. That's the quickest way. Actually, I think it'll be the quickest way if we pull it up on our Patreon. Oh, I think you're right. Uh, yeah, 17 was Spinardi, and that was the last one. This is 18 with Melissa Mitchell of Hope Social Club. You weren't in on this one. No. But our guest host is Aurora Ford. She yeah. was a guest. She was a guest, exactly. And and she is a also a freelance journalist. And so she's she's had a lot of experience with interviews. And she knows Melissa. And she hit me up and she was like, this, this woman is amazing. And um, Melissa did not disappoint. One thing that was really, really cool about... Uh, that, that I'm just remembering off the top of my head about Melissa is that she performed at Folsom prison, the new Folsom prison. So that, that like was Johnny cash. Exactly. But that was the old Folsom prison, which I, which if I remember correctly is a tourist attraction now, whereas the new Folsom prison is an actual prison. Still, there's this one part where she talks about stab jackets is and that like a bulletproof vest, but for stabbing. Exactly. Yeah. And, and how, uh, performing for these certain inmates who are like maximum security that they had to be kind of in cages. And so, I mean, you'll, you'll hear that in, in the audio, I'm, in our conversation. I'm pretty excited to listen. This is the first crude conversations that I wasn't a part of. I just get to be a guest. <laughs> well, you're, you're the, you're the initial host. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and uh, leave a review on it and let you really know how you did. <laughs> You're like three. I wasn't on it. Yeah. Three stars. <laughs> it's missing something. I don't know what. Yeah. There's this, there's this thing that it's missing. A so really nerdy voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're getting used to your voice though, right? That's right. That's Good. right. I told nice. you you would. That's right, man. <laughs> All right, dude. I don't know. I'm goofy today. Let's see. What else do we need to cover? Um, Leave us a review on iTunes if you're on there, because that, that helps out a lot. Check us out on Spotify. Um, head over to our Patreon. You know, that's what allows us to do this. And you get early access to episodes. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and, and honestly, just just helping us support this podcast, just supporting this podcast whether you're interested in the early uh, early releases, you know, it allows us to be able to help continue telling Alaska's story in the way that we are. Yeah, you basically get to become an investor. So even if that incentive isn't what you're looking for, you get to really help this mission. You know, for example, um, Cody is has a mic stand right now for his microphone, and it's literally tape onto a plastic jar of party mix. <laughs> so it is, dude. I posted this photo a while back. Or I think we did on, on crude on maybe our story. Yeah. Yeah, we did, we did. I, I kinda like it. It's like the perfect height. It's funny because it's just above your goatee. Right. It's not a goatee. We've already gone over this. Oh. <laughs> it's a beard. It's a goatee. <laughs> <laughs> but you said nobody eats this. No, but you know what? The, the roommate came home and it was in that box over there. And it looks like that's like a box of stuff that's going to go somewhere. I don't know. But that's some expired party mix for sure. Yeah, we might need to slap a crude sticker on it. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. So in Trina. every episode, right? We got to give a shout out. Pull over. What's that? <laughs> no, Trina. Oh, yeah. Pull over. <laughs> Pull over that. You fat. <laughs> I like how you censored yourself. I did. I censored myself. I didn't know so, how to approach that so one. So, Trina Duber, shout whoop, out. Whoop. And Stewart Brewing Company. Thanks a lot, guys. And every other one of our patrons. Other than that, it's Christmas time. Yeah, it's Merry Christmas. Merry yep, Christmas happy and happy holidays. holidays. Happy New Year. Feliz Navidad. All of it. Yep. I hope you're with your, uh, you're with your families and you're enjoying this beautiful Alaskan winter we have. And, you know, we also just want to thank everybody 
that that has been listening and that that give us feedback, whether it's online or whether it's in person. I ran into a uh, a buddy of mine, James, at the new Sagaya downtown today and had like an impromptu 10 minute conversation with him and his girlfriend about how much they are enjoying the podcast, which is I mean, that that's amazing, dude. You know, it's really cool, actually. This podcast has brought me closer to some of my family. Because my cousin Danielle is married to uh, this guy, Derek. And Derek ends up being like, he's this podcast junkie. Like, he doesn't even do music. He just listens to podcasts. Okay. And, you know, I had, you know, obviously he married my cousin. I talked to him, but it was, it's always been very surface level. And then he found out I had this podcast, started listening. And I went over there because she helped me with some like accounting stuff. She's an accountant. And we talked for like an hour and a half. You and this guy? Yeah, Derek. And he was just like, dude, I think you have the best podcast in Alaska. And I don't, I don't know, man. I, it was like him listening to me maybe made it easier for us to talk in person, but he's really awesome too. And so... Dude, that's what's up. That's yeah, awesome. that was pretty sweet, man. Yeah. And I was like, cool, I got his approval. That's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, I He think, knows what he's talking about. You know, one thing that, that Joe Rogan said uh, in one of his podcasts uh, that, I, that really stuck with me was that there's a reason he never does interviews. And it's because he puts himself out there so consistently, you know, in, in three hour increments, yeah. right? And I think that... Uh, maybe a little of that applies to the situation where we're putting ourselves out there in hour, hour and a half increments to where it's it's just out there in the ether of the world and we can sit down. If somebody has been listening to maybe even just one podcast, they feel a little bit more comfortable talking to us. Yeah, dude. I talked about my depression. Yeah. I talk about Tinder and Bumble. <laughs> maybe I need to chill out. This stuff lives on the internet forever, right? Yeah, I think you should just kick it into next gear, dude. Kick it in the next gear. Yeah. I can't wait for uh, 2019, baby. It's all coming out. <laughs> it's all coming out. Should we jump into this? Before, Let's jump into this. Before I say something I don't want to. All right. Melissa Mitchell of Hope Social Club. Here we go. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. So Melissa <laughs> is cozying up with a blanket right now. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we are actually live. Oh, great. Melissa. <laughs> yes. You just had a show this past weekend. I did on Saturday night. How did it go? It was awesome. It was really great. Actually, it was a packed house and lots of familiar faces and people that I haven't seen in a really long time. A lot of Girdwood folks, which was really sweet. And um, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I guess it, I, I got... I got news from a friend that there was a fatal car accident right after the concert. So that kind of changed my view of how the show was for me, unfortunately. You know, here in Anchorage? It was somebody that was leaving their show. It was somebody that was dancing right in front. That was a friend of ours on the, you know, we had a guest on the guest list and her friend, they were dancing right in front of us all night and he left the show and ran into a light pole and. Jeez, car exploded and yeah so it's just i mean we all went to the carousel and had a great time and danced you know to one of our favorite little country bands and Mm -hmm. had a blast and then just to know that that happened really shifted kind of the reality around it because she was really sending me a letter of gratitude for being in the space that night with her friend and having the opportunity to dance and hug and like that's their last memory together you know so that's really cool but at the same time it's also terribly heartbreaking so yeah how does how does something like that 
affect the experience or how you remember the experience of of a show? Uh, pretty greatly, actually. I mean, I have to say last night I was talking to my husband on the phone when I was reading it. Um, and I was just, I just immediately was like crying and trying to kind of process that because to me, you know, like we're on stage and the whole point is to bring everyone into the experience, you know, and it was such a powerful night. Um, seeing as we haven't played in a while and we have just like a few shows left. Um, so just seeing all these like awesome faces. And like I said, a lot of people I haven't seen in a long time and people that were just like completely engaged in the experience and then feeling that gratitude and then going from that to like knowing what happens afterwards. You know, we were kind of reflecting on it because we were talking, you know, she texted me in the morning and was like, Hey, did you make it home safe? Mm -hmm. And I went past that accident, you know, hours later, not knowing what that was, you know, and like my, my guitar player drove directly past it right after it happened. Was the wreckage still there? Yeah. 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 And so the, at that, when I sent, I sent the band the whole um, email because I just felt like they would want to know that too, because they know her and, and, you know, it was just, I don't know. Yeah. It does. It does change the way that I feel about it because it, it's also a very um, clear message that we are touching people, you know, and that we're directly involved in their experience. It's not just hey, I'm at a show and I'm seeing you and ha ha ha. You know, it's like she wanted to compliment us on our performance or whatever, but also like that memory will always be with her, you mm -hmm. know. And just over the 20 years that I've been playing music, that kind of stuff has happened a lot. That was going to be my next question was, yeah. has something like that ever happened to you before? Well, I mean, not directly like that, but, you know, I've been a, I've played a lot of weddings and I've played a lot of funerals and, you know, been asked to be a part of a lot of different um, people's experiences because I'm very personal to them, you know. And so I've had to kind of, you know, become a chameleon in some ways, you know, where a lot of people might not be comfortable with that. It's like it's kind of one of the things that I actually really enjoy doing because I know that there's something really valuable about that moment, you know, like actually being engaged with someone outside of the entertainment factor of music. Mm -hmm. You know, having like a really poignant moment with another person, whether it's for joy or sorrow, whatever that is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Mel and I were friends sort of before this happened, but um, we had a good friend who passed away a couple of years mm -hmm. ago. He died of cancer. He was 32, very young, very unexpected. It happened really quickly. And we asked her to come up there and mm -hmm. be there when he was passing. <clears throat> Pardon me, I'm not crying. I had a frog in my throat. Um, but what I didn't expect and what she ended up doing was to, she sort of sensed the moment like he was having his last breaths and um, Mel started singing Amazing Grace and we all sang him out of this world. And that was one of the most insane, intense and powerful and terrible and wonderful oh, experiences I've ever had in my life, which, you know, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass, but like you have a capability to create that kind of energy when it's most needed that I've never found in anyone else mm. thank you yeah, yeah that yeah god damn we went dark right away <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know and that wasn't dark to me though you no, know i mean that's the I thing know. like we lost a friend and you know and and some a really close friend and you know i mean it's just like it's one of those things where i don't always feel like i, I feel like a facilitator a lot of times you know and that's kind of, I think, always been my role. I mean, part of how I started 
like doing things like this was I was a volunteer for um, hospice when I was a kid because my neighbor was a hospice, you know, she worked for hospice. And so she would take me to work with her and I would go, you know, hang out with all the old folks or whatever at the old folks home and, you know, talk to them and blah, blah, blah. And then as it got like time to do, they would do a balloon launch every year in memory of people they had lost over the year. And they'd always ask me to come sing, you know, Mm -hmm. and so I'd be singing for all these grieving families. And this was like as a teenager, you know, and so I think it was always like one of those things where I kind of knew that was a weird comfort zone for me, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, to sort of facilitate and people feeling their feelings. Yeah. You know, you know, in the situation where, you started singing Amazing Grace. Did you did you just feel it like, I, you know, I need to do this right now? <laughs> well, it was kind of, I mean, to me, it was sort of funny because he was not the kind of person that would have appreciated that very much. I think that's how it and always so, happens. Yeah. So part of it was like, I could sense that everyone was extremely uncomfortable and very sad. And we were all sort of at that moment of embrace with each other where... We knew it was coming, but we kind of been there all day and it was just really weird. It was just a really weird moment. And I don't know what I, and oftentimes I don't, I'm just, you know, actually just like sort of pushed or nudged to do something. But I just thought, you know, maybe if we just start singing, he'll like sit up and be like, shut the fuck up, you guys. (laughs) Fuck off with your hands. Seriously. Like, I mean, I kind of was like, you know, in my head, I'm like, let's just do something to startle him out of this you know you know i think that that's how (laughs) how people react to grief yeah you know i think that grief affects i've gone through it Mm -hmm. um at least once like really hard and you never know how you're going to react to it and i think that it's always about the people that are left behind Mm -hmm. it's never about i mean it is to a certain degree the person that's there and that is passing but in that moment i guess kind of what i'm i'm interpreting is like you as a performer and somebody who who just has this in their blood you sensed it mm-hmm. you know and this is this is how you guys grieved it was cathartic yeah mm-hmm. oh it, it was very much so and i mean even we sang as they were carrying his body out the door you know it was just sort of like that's always been the way that i've known how to move energy for myself you know i mean i had lots of death in my life as a child and and, and as an adult and so i think that's always been the way that i've coped and so even though it might not be super comfortable for everyone else it's like hey let's just you know i forgot that we sang when they were care what what song was that i fucking can't remember do you remember i feel like now that you say it i remember we did that but it was such a well there was a lot of whiskey going around that night first of all but yeah i mean i i just feel like it was and it was just like a thing where we were all like kind of i'm sorry what song was that she said i think it was you are my sunshine okay and who was this this his his name was ian ryerson yeah okay he was a he was a pretty stellar human being. He really was. Jack of all trades, gardener, photographer, businessman, six foot four, beard of champions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I kind of came into the the relationship, you know, friendship later, you know, um, and actually was, I also ended up doing body work on him because he was in a lot of pain, you know, so I also had that interesting. <laughs> what do you mean by body work? So I'm a massage therapist as well. Okay. And so he would come to my clinic when he was feeling well enough. And mm-hmm. um, sometimes he would just sit in the parking lot and tell me he was too sick to come in. But I mean, I literally, you know, watched his body go from like a normal 
man's body to a sort of skeleton, you know, and it was that to me was totally weird and crazy because it was like, here I am, like, you know, all these other people kind of like had this other relationship with him. And mine was very much like in his time of death. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it it kind of it, it was actually a huge shift for me and part of like, I think how I feel like that is part of my reason for being here you know, on the planet. And I don't shy away from it. You know, I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of talking about it or anything like that. It just it really kind of anchored it for me. Yeah. No, it's an honor. Yeah, absolutely. It well, is. Speaking absolutely. as another person that has that sort of tendency to like yeah. try and help facilitate sure. things that are sad sometimes. It's, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's something you get to do for people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and I think that that's something that as you get older, you realize about yourself mm-hmm. that, that that is your responsibility Mm -hmm. and in those moments you know you need to you need to answer your calling Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and not shy away or be afraid or sort of downplay it Mm -hmm. you know because it's uncomfortable for people you know yeah but i think i'm pretty comfortable in the uncomfortable so aurora aurora knows that well Mm -hmm. (laughs) she doesn't she doesn't make it easy (laughs) dang it so as somebody who performs all over alaska Mm -hmm. What's something you've learned about Alaskans? <laughs> that they're fucking crazy? No, I guess I already knew that. <laughs> I, I'm born and raised here, so I guess um, what I've learned about like the different, you know, more remote parts is that there's a lot of people here that aren't from here and that they are absolutely hypnotized by Alaska. And so it's actually kind of given me a little bit of a better perspective as someone who has, you know, grown up here my whole life. Like I grew up in an extremely incredibly beautiful place, but not maybe so beautifully personally in my, you know, personal realm. So a lot of that got tainted, I think, you know, so it's good for me to travel around and play music for people who, you know, maybe aren't from here and they're so excited about where they're at and what they're seeing for the first time. And, you know, so I, I don't know. I mean, I like that what you just said about if you're from here, Alaska is tainted a little bit. Yeah. yeah you know, I think that <laughs> there are so true. There are people that that travel here and they romanticize it mm-hmm. and they, they know the facade of Alaska. Sure. They don't know it like deeply and personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I well, think, I mean, that's, I think pretty... that's true for anywhere. I mean, I'm moving to Hawaii and, you know, and it's like I have no idea what I'm walking into. But, you know, people that have lived there or grown up there are not like as romanticizing it as I am, you know, like, mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, I can't wait to get to the ocean like hang out in the trees and stuff. You know, and they're <laughs> like, whatever, you know, like they don't even go swimming, you know? <laughs> yeah. Howie. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am not without breath. I am not without breath. So is I, that what that means? It, yeah, I think so. It, um, I went on a zip line tour and the guy explained to us what Howley is. Okay, that's what it means? It's, I think it's without breath, like dead people. Like a Howley is actually like a zombie. Yeah, because we're so I could be totally pale, fucking wrong, white. but we okay. could look it up. We could do some Google searching or something. <laughs> no, this is a podcast. It's fact. That's no, it. That's it. That's it. Yeah, I heard it on the internet. Ask, yeah. people. Ask our research assistant over there. <laughs> when did you start playing music? Uh, well, um, I was singing my whole life. And like I said, that was kind of my therapy. I mean, I lived out in the woods and it was kind of crazy. So I, I had the, I had the bug to sing always, but playing guitar, I didn't really start until I was, um, in high school. And 
I didn't really, really start playing until I was like, you know, 18, 19 after I'd graduated. And um, I met a guy that taught me like three chords and I was like, oh, I can do this. And then I wrote like a ton of songs with three chords. <laughs> and it was mostly just the words. I, I finally had a way to put like the words that I had inside me to some sort of, you know, into context. And I was a poet and I always was writing and was always writing this really kind of dark, you know, morbid stuff. My mom would be like, what is this? You know? <laughs> well, you were a teenager. I think that's. Normal. Yeah. I mean, I, that's totally normal. And then what I, what I actually found was that the being able to add that musical piece in playing guitar and having something to accompany myself with allowed me to express a more, more joyful information, I guess, you know, or more, a, a better message, mm-hmm. you know. So Aurora sent me this kind of like, what did you call it? A uh, brief synopsis of a full life. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. Thus far or something like thus that, far. right? Full life thus far. And yeah, um, thank you. <laughs> no, it was, it was great. And it's funny. Did you just type that? Like, just, I'm going to type this to Cody and this is, so you, that wasn't yeah, pre-written or anything it. like that? Mm-mm. So that is a testament to what a great writer you are actually because well, I, I read it. it and I'm like did you prepare this for me or? some of that and you know I, I was hoping we would get into this anyway because the reason that I know Melissa is because when David Holdhouse and Susie Buchanan were editors at the Anchorage Press they needed a music feature and I had just gone to a party in which she was you know playing the guitar and I like just suddenly I was I made everybody around me shut up I was not interested in what anybody else was saying I was like who the fuck is that <laughs> Who is that? And um, so I was really just looking for an excuse to like kind of get to know her better anyway. So I sold David Holthouse really hard on um, letting me do this feature with her. And I got to drive up to her house. She was living in Bear Valley at the time. And um, we just became really close friends right away. But I was sort of I was like writing kind of a biography of her life up until that point then when I didn't know her very well. So some of those facts that I wrote to you, like I remember from that piece. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, it ended up being, again, like sort of just to bring it back around, like yeah. a weird cathartic. Yeah. The moment. day, the day after I finished writing it, Mel called me to say like, you know, we had, we had talked a lot about her family and her dad and he died, he died yeah, that he died day. That so, night. Yeah. It was, it was bananas. I mean, she came up and I was, I was getting ready to go out. Actually, I was going to go out to Girdwood and go dancing to a band and so I was kind of like getting ready while we were, mm-hmm. you know, interviewing and we didn't really know each other that well. So it was oh. very like, you know, just informal kind of whatever. But for whatever reason, not that that was the the purpose of the story, but it, it veered towards my dad and mm-hmm. my relationship with him and yeah. how kind of strained that always was and whatever. And then I went out to that show and I came home the next day and my cousin called me and he was gone. And it yeah. was just fucking bizarre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just thought that was the weirdest thing because then it was, you know, like all through this article was like this thread of me talking about my dad who I don't talk about really very much, you know? Yeah. I don't know. It's sort of weird. That, that's weird how the universe works out like that yeah. sometimes. And then it just, yeah, I mean, it, but it also just solidified our friendship and connection, you know, like we had something that yeah was really deep and real. Yeah, you know? right away. What I was thinking about earlier, because we were sort of... You know, we were talking about your work with hospice when you were really young. I thought that might be a good segue mm. uh, to ask you to talk about how you got involved in doing prison work. Um, a, how did that come about? And B, I'm curious to know sort of what a day in that 
you know, activity would look like from when you show up and check in in the morning. I imagine they would give you sort of a, a rundown on what to expect and what the rules were and uh, what you would do with the guys, like what the activities were. Because yeah. I imagine you didn't just go in there and be like, hey, everybody, sing them some songs and bolt. No, you actually, know? I did the first no. time. Um, yeah, so I was uh, introduced to the program. It had an arts and corrections program at the time. And um, th- in this California, was in particularly at, at New Folsom Prison in California. And, and this is the one that Johnny Cash well, sang so, at? Well, yeah. So New Folsom is right next to Old Folsom. And okay, Old Folsom okay. is, is uh, a museum now, pretty much. Um, and New Folsom is a level four maximum security prison. So okay. uh, basically what was going on is that there was a, a DJ, Sherry Snook, out of um, Northern California, uh, KVMR Radio. And she had a big connection to the music scene up here. Her brother lives up here and, you know, she had been up here many times. So she would come up in the summer and sort of troll music scenes, you know, and check it out and take music back to California and play it on her show. And uh, I think it was the Universal Tapestry at the time was the name of her show. And it was all Alaskan artists. So she, unbeknownst to me, had been playing my music for quite some time. And that music was somehow getting piped into New Folsom. She had connections with those with the guys in there and with this arts and corrections program. So she approached me one day, I think at the forest fair and, and asked me if that's something I would be interested in doing. And I thought, well, sure. You know, I, I really, I'm pretty open to whatever. So I had, and I had no idea what that looked like or what it meant. But what I did know was that I had been at band practice, like maybe a year before that. And I was trying to figure out a way to have our music at that time I was playing with a completely different group of people and I wanted to have the music have the most impact. And so I thought, well, how would we do that? So I literally went to band practice and I was like, what do you guys think about like joining the USO and like jumping out of helicopters and playing music for all these people and like going to the jungle or whatever the hell that looked like. I did actually check into the USO, but they would never have hired me because they don't play enough country cover songs mm-hmm. and I had a little kid at the time so I couldn't really do that but the other thing was I was like well what if we went into prisons you know because I having a extremely interesting and eclectic family had spent a lot of time going to visit my family in prison and I understood what that looked like and how uh, lonely that was you know and so there was something already stirring which was weird because I'm a a really weird manifester of shit in my life. <laughs> That's true. These girls can attest to that. Did it just feel comfortable or familiar? I, or? Well, it felt really familiar, at least for me to go in and visit, you know, yeah. for sure. And and I just thought, like, wouldn't that be great to, like, bring art into this space? Well, I didn't even know that was a thing. It's certainly not a thing here in Alaska, or at least wasn't at that point. So anyway, that's like a caveat to then what happened, you know. Um, with this woman approaching me. And so she offered um, to have me come down and I was going on a trip to go to the bridge school benefit in California with uh, my boyfriend at the time. And we had this plan to like drive down and go see Neil Young and all this shit. And in the meantime, we were like, well, let's just stop here at New Folsom Prison and I'll play these guys some songs. And I don't know, you know, people think I'm nuts, which I probably am. And my boyfriend at the time was like, I don't know what the fuck we're doing, but all right, you know, so we, <laughs> we pull in and it was just he and I and, um, they took us in and we had to go through the metal detector, I believe, at that point. And um, they took us into the library of one of the yards. And I was literally greeted with, like, the happiest handshakes and the sweetest smiles and the most, like, 
just like love in their eyes by these men that had been listening to my songs on the radio or had somehow gotten a copy of a CD, you know? So a lot different than Silence of the Lambs. Way different. It was weird. And so, you know, like I said, my boyfriend at the time, like he's not a musician at all. So they had all these instruments. Then um, basically the idea was like, I was going to go and play songs for these guys, which I felt really awkward doing. So I did what I always do. And I said, hey, what the fuck are you up to? And how's life in prison? And what fuck, you know, and tried to like. Did you ask that? Yeah, how's life in well, prison? I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know? And I'm just trying to get real. You know, I'm trying to make it so that we're not all like awkward and shit. You know, did you get any responses to that question? Oh, yeah. Oh, they're not afraid. Tremendous. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, these people, like, I swear to God, all the men that I met were far more interesting than most of the people that I meet in my daily life, you know, outside. And uh, so the very first time it was like, you know, there was a guy with like a, you know, a pick in his fro and he had like a synthesizer. Because basically I was like, hey, I know that I'm here to perform, but what I'd really like to know is like what you guys do, because obviously you're into this, you're into art, you're into either making it or, or, you know, taking it in or whatever. So homie went and got his synthesizer, you know, and the other guy, you know, they had to go out of the room and get escorted with a guard and all that shit. And he came back in and he sang, he's just sang like love songs, you know, he's just like, oh yeah, baby, you know, like get down into it. I was like, fucking right on, you know, and this other guy got up and like did a spoken word piece and, you know, and then I was like, okay, well, I'll sing you like an old murder ballad. You know, I sang him Johnny Cash song and they just were like loving it. They, you know, I did Long Black Veil and they were like, ah, you know. Yeah. And it was just this really poignant moment of like, um, wow, this this is easy for me. You know, it's like easy for me because it's not a performance. It's actually connecting with people one on one, which mm -hmm. is way easier for me than a performance. You know, I actually think performances can become kind of stale and, and you know trite. So this, it was really cool. And then I went back the next time I was invited back was um, the following month. And Michael Franti was coming in to do a concert. And it was the first concert that had been live broadcast since the Johnny Cash show. So it was a big, huge deal. And uh, they brought me and two other women in, uh, Diane Patterson and, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember her name right at the moment. I'll, I'll think of it. But anyway, um, one girl played like a crystal bowl and the other one did like a drum thing, an Earth Mama drum thing. And then I got up and sang my songs. And I was like, hey, you know, like you can hear in the recording, like I'm talking to the guys that I know in the audience. Do you still have this recording? <laughs> oh, yeah. It was it was videoed and live broadcast oh, that's all amazing. over the country. Mm -hmm. So it was crazy. You know, it was kind of like a it was a really wild moment. And then you had fucking Michael Franti and Spearhead. Right? Yeah, yeah. In a in a chapel you know, maybe as big as this house we're in, you know, and like they escorted all these guys in and you got Michael Franti, who's, you know, token thing is like, I want to see you jumping, you know, <laughs> and they're not allowed to jump. They're, <laughs> they're not, not allowed, allowed to, any... to fucking dance. They're really? not allowed to... They're just standing there watching. Well, they were supposed to sit. Okay. You know, like they're supposed to sit and just shut the fuck up basically, you know, and they've got all the guards at the back. And of course, women are not a huge like, yay, let's bring women in, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you got three ladies in there, you know, who are just like excited. And I know some of them. And as soon as I know you, I'm going to hug you and tell you I love you, which is absolutely not allowed. 
So that was another piece of it. And uh, so they got and they got fucking spearhead playing. So it's like, you know, I'm in the back and I'm like boogieing around and they're like, mm, can't do that. You know, and I keep getting these like faces. And I'm like that, you know, I'm like on a chair, like dancing with my body is literally as close to the wall. They were treating you like uh, like Elvis. Well, it's like, they, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Don't move your hands. Don't move anything. Don't do anything. But I guess, you know, what, again, what it showed me is like the light that you can bring into a place like that. And, and what those guys got to feel that day was so powerful. And it was literally the, like the genesis of what became One Soul, which is the group that I ended up kind of pulling together after that, because I kept wanting to go back. And in fact, I moved to California to go back to the prison because I wanted to focus on that work. Okay. And I really felt like a, I already had like a little foothold with the music scene so I could like play music out. But my focus was really to go in more, you know, and over time I kept coming back from these experiences and being like, holy shit, you guys, don't you want to go do this? And all my musical friends were like, you're fucking nuts. Like they wanted nothing to do with it. I mean, I still have a lot of friends who are like, I don't know why you did that or why you would even dream of doing something like that. But eventually I had nine of us, you know, over the course of maybe six or seven years, I had nine of us that would go in at least once a year, if not twice a year, we'd go in for six, seven, eight, nine days straight. And we'd go into every single part of that prison into like, the darkest, the, like the hole of the hole, you know, where you see the scariest motherfuckers you've ever seen in your life. And you're singing them like, ha, 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 you know, whatever your fucking song is. I mean, I, we had one girl that played the didgeridoo. We had one that played a mandolin, you know, I mean, all kinds of shit. I wonder whose brainchild this was to, to bring <laughs> musicians into like, I mean, were these, some of these inmates like in the hole and they brought them out to see? Yes. So Jim Carlson was our angel and he was an art therapist at, at New Folsom at the time. Okay. He had worked at San Quentin for many years and he is a brilliant man. I fucking love Jim. And he like Sherry was the one that kind of introduced us and got us in the door. But Jim was our mentor. And he was the one that taught us how to make this happen. And he would always, first thing, he'd be like, okay, guys, it's really good to have you here. Mel, you can't hug anybody, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because he knew, or do, you know, he would say like, keep the joy to a minimum, you know, because we'd get so excited and happy. And what would happen is these like joyful experiences would start to happen inside the room we were in and the guys would get so excited and we'd all be singing and, you know, laughing and forgetting where we were for a minute, you know, which was such a gift. And Mm -hmm. Jim saw that and Jim knew that there was a way to do it within the rules and confines of the prison, because certainly not everyone was down with us being there. And certainly not everyone was down with having women come in. Who wasn't down with you being there? Oh, the guards. Okay. I mean, not the, we, okay. we, I mean, we went so far as to actually go to the warden's office and sing for them, go into the other administrators' uh, meetings and sing for them or play for them because we knew how important it was for them to know that we were real mm-hmm. and that we weren't just, because there, there's, um, you know, a lot of groups that'll go into prison because they're, uh, they have religious sort of like, you know, they're pushing a religion motivation mm-hmm. or they're, um, God, I hate to say it, but some, you know, there were groups that I knew that went in there strictly to find partners, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know how that works out. <clears throat> I, I never wanted to cross that boundary. Um, I felt like what we were doing was so sacred and such a gift that I never, ever wanted to screw it up. What would you say to somebody who 
is against, you know, uh, performances like that in a prison, you know, a maximum security prison mm-hmm. where these people have committed murder, you sure. know, they have yeah. the worst of the worst. Sure. I mean, yeah. why, why do they deserve that? Okay. So, uh, what, what I, what I would say, I guess, is that everyone deserves it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're humans, they're not animals. And what we know and what we saw is that that's the mentality of a lot of the guards and a lot of the administration. I wouldn't say all, because we certainly met a lot of amazing administrators who had huge hearts and wanted nothing but rehabilitation. But, you know, California took rehabilitation out of their motto for a long time and quit, you know, doing these types of things. And arts and corrections wasn't we, we lost funding. Well, none of us, we, we always went in as volunteers. We never got paid to go. Um, so that was kind of one of our things was that we didn't, we weren't going in because we were getting paid to go or because we were getting like status out of it. It was purely because there was something else that we got from this and the connection that we got to make with these humans. So I would say to them, like, try to open your heart a little bit, try to be human a little bit. And that was you know, the beautiful thing is they brought Michael Franti in there and he's got that song, Everyone Deserves Music, you know, mm-hmm. everyone deserves music. And then he had the Stay Human campaign, which he's just now rolling out, which started then, you know, this was in 2006 mm-hmm. and he's just now releasing his film about that. And those guys were part of it. You know, it's like, we have to remember that this, uh, you know, American prison system is a fucked up way to, um, I don't know, marginalize and enslave a lot of, a lot, a lot of people, mostly men. And, and I wouldn't, I don't even know the statistics, but what I know is from my experience going in there, what I saw was a lot of uh, people who were put into that place through socioeconomic reasons. Mm Mm-hmm. They were born into a shitty neighborhood. They didn't have a fucking choice. They were born into a gang or whatever, or their mom was never home. And they got, you know, scooted in by, a, a you know, people they thought would be their family. And then they got fucked over or however it worked, you know. And what I saw was fundamentally good men. And, and the difference was when we came to Alaska and we were like, came back home and we were like, we got to do something like this here. We went to, you know, our maximum security prison. And it wasn't just socioeconomic. It was um, generational trauma. And which one is that? We went to Spring Creek. Okay. And uh, we solicited that. Like, we got a hold of the superintendent at the time who ended up being uh, just such a great friend to us. And it, we thought we were walking into a similar system. What was his initial response when you... He when thought you... we were fucking crazy. Okay. He didn't know why the <laughs> fuck we would want to go in there. And I was like, well, we've done this and that and the other thing. And I get pretty excited about this stuff. I get really joyful about it. And so it's hard for sometimes, I think, for people to take me seriously. You know, until they get to the... To see kind of what happens, the magic that happens. And so um, it was just interesting because we went into that prison. And of course, a lot of that is, you know, our Alaska Native population mm-hmm. and people who, you know, come, you know, into Anchorage or whatever, you know, from the villages, they have no way to get work. They have and they commit crimes or they've been perpetrated upon. And I mean, our population was heavily, uh, you know, sexual predators or, you know, mm-hmm. people that had been perpetrated upon and then perpetrated. 
And the cycle was just being repeated and repeated and repeated. So that was a main difference. I mean, certainly not to say that there wasn't, you know, sexual, you know, abuse people in the in the prison system in California, but it was definitely more drug deals, murders, you know, that kind of yeah, thing. Not generational historical trauma. Exactly. Trauma, you know, and trauma. so that that became a really difficult piece to try to um, bridge for mm-hmm. me because I maybe it touched too many of my generational traumas, but at the same time, like I felt like I could walk in to Folsom for some reason and just be like, what's up? Let's fucking do this. Let's talk about stuff and things, you know, where there was, there wasn't as much of a gap in our communication. There wasn't as much of a gap in the understanding of what art was. And our group was actually part of, like I said, that arts and corrections program. So they had already been involved with Jim coming into a room on at least on a weekly basis based on, you know, strictly on behavior. Like, you know, they had to ask to be involved and then they had to prove that they could be involved. So it was a huge privilege to be in this like special room. And when you walked in, it had art all over the walls. It had, you know, all these instruments locked up in cages And we would get in there. It had a computer. I mean, you could actually like, you know, word processor. You couldn't like, you know, get to the internet, but you could Mm -hmm. type lyrics out. No Google. There was no Googs in there. (laughs) Well, actually there is Google in there, but it's just not a fucking allowed, but they do it. Um, But in this room, there was like this, it was a sanctuary for them and for us. And so it was almost like every time we walked in, it was like, we're into the library, you know, where there was like, you know, people were trying to educate themselves, you know, mostly in the law, obviously, they were trying to figure out how they could get themselves out. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, or going to find a place of peace, because the yard is not peaceful. No, you know, Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I went in there, and we walked into the chapel, I, there was, you know, guys walking the track, you know, and I was just like, hey, guys, what's up? Oh, you know, just kind of, dumbass walked up right behind him and they were like you know kind of startled and of course i'm a woman so then they were like what the fuck you know and the guard was like you can't walk up on people like that here. you know i had no frame of reference i had no idea you know i just oh i'm going for a walk you know mm-hmm. it was really I, I was naive you know and i got taught a lot about um how to hold yourself and carry yourself in that place and uh and then and then just to be open to let the magic happen. And I have never, ever seen or heard the type of art and um, visual art and experiences that I had in there. I, I just can't even, I, I mean, over and over again. Do you know any statistics about the new Folsom prison? I mean, that these these kind of arts are introduced to it. Did it have any like positive repercussions? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't have the statistics, but like a lot of the guys that we worked with are out now and they were lifers. They were LWAPs. They were called LWAPs life without parole because California changed their three strikes law. Oh. And so the guys that were in there for whether it was a violent crime or not, like if Mm -hmm. they had good behavior or whatever the circumstances were, they were eligible for parole again. I mean, one of one of my favorites that I met the very first time. I mean, he's getting married in December, and I was hoping you to go still to his wedding. Keep in contact. Yes, yes. I mean, they got a hold of me after they got out, you know. And so it's like, oh my god. And I, I mean, that was the thing. There's very few that were like that, but there was a few that were like, I knew we had a soul connection, mm-hmm. and 
there was no doubt in my mind. You know, there's there's one down in, in Southern California that I swear to God, we're going to have a barbecue one of these days. And he's going to tell me all about God. And, you know, he's going to give me the good word. He was one of the most amazing spoken word poets I've ever met. I mean, beaters, you know, like making this fine art, you know, um, drawings, like everything you could imagine, like just incredibly uh, just amazing men. Yeah. <laughs> really? And that somehow managed to stay, you know, you talked to me about some of them. And one of the things, you know, that is so hard for me to fathom is that you met some of those people who at the time thought they were in there for life and didn't have any choice in the matter. And they still, they were still, I don't know, positive. Yeah. They had, they had hope. They were, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't, like, I can't, how, how well, would you hang on to that? That's a really... That's a that's a good question, and you might want to do a podcast with Spoon Jackson at some point. Hey, because he is the most, uh, one of the most prolific prison writers you know I've ever met, and he he went into prison the year I was born. He was eighteen years old, and he's still there. I'm forty one. You know, he's been in prison for a long fucking time, mm -hmm. and he has had nothing but good behavior. He's been. A, a poet, a playwright, he's published books, he's had fucking movies made about him, and he cannot get out for to save his life. And where is he? Now he's in San Quentin. He got moved. Mm -hmm. So what happened with Folsom is um, with the change in the system and the change in money or whatever the shuffling is, however they do that shit, they just send you to a different place. You know, it's like, oh, they come to your cell. Hey, buddy, you're out. And they send you to a different place. So a lot of our guys got moved. One of them, Ken, um, you know, he wrote these incredible old blues songs. He's an, he was an old man when we met him, and that was 10 years ago. So he got moved to like a geriatric prison. You know, they kind of all get moved around. And um, Spoon just happened to get moved to San Quentin. And I don't know what the actual why, but he's trying to get out we're fucking signing petitions on facebook and shit to get this guy out and what's he in there for i think murder <laughs> you know but i don't know i don't ask that's the thing i never ask mm -hmm. okay that was kind of one Which of the is, rules yeah it's like probably don't ask you know that they trust and, you. you know i mean i think spiff said it one time he was like talking to somebody and he was like man it's just you know however he was talking to somebody and the guy said well we're not in here for stealing bubblegum you yeah. know, like that was as far as we got. Alluding to the severity of. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Alluding to like, hey, you know, we're not, we're not all fucking peaches and cream here. You yeah. Know? Because we had the opportunity to see their best selves. Like, I truly believe that. And I believe that that um, maybe was helpful to them in their process of getting out, you know, and, and like re in entering into society, because that's got to be more fucking terrifying than being in prison for 40 fucking years mm -hmm. is thinking about coming out. I mean, think about, you know, Shawshank Redemption. Well, you're institutionalized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, and they do it from the drop. And so we would talk a lot about that, you know, about how they pull back. I mean, we actually went in the, the very first time we were in the room, Jim came in and he said, Hey, I need you three ladies to come with me. And there was three of us. They called us the Trinity. And it was me and my two other Pisces sisters. And uh, like I said, one played the didgeridoo. The other one played guitar. And I mean, you know, it's just like real. We're all very different, you know, different ends of the Pisces spectrum, which is, is wild to say the least. And he took us to um, the uh, ADSEG unit, which is like where they go when they're being reprimanded in prison. So they've done something wrong. They get put in the hole or whatever, and they bring them out and they put them, you could walk into a room. Well, first we had to put on um, 
stab jackets is what they call them stab jackets jesus so they took us to the thing they said can you explain a stab jacket it's a fucking big huge like jacket so you, so you don't get, get stabbed <laughs> it's like, so it's kind of like a bulletproof vest kind yes, of thing except it's like it's like a life vest except it's made of shit that will let you get stabbed <laughs> and is it pretty obvious that you have this stab jacket on yeah do you think that maybe they know where to stab you outside <laughs> yeah, yeah. or around think, the stab jacket? I think they're smart enough to figure that out. Some of them, at least. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the situation is like they're walking. We, we didn't really know. I mean, he kind of gives us the briefing as we're walking through. Jim is a very kind, loving, uh, spiritual man. And he would kind of be very gentle with us and tell us, okay, so we're going into this room. These guys are going to be, you know, locked up behind these things. So we walk in, we get the jacket on. Now we have to figure out how to like put our guitars over the top of this shit or how we're, how Sean's going to play our flute or like whatever, you know, and the the fucking room is literally lined with cages that are about the size of phone booths. And the, and the prisoners were in the cages. Well, they weren't there yet. They were showing us the room. So they show us the room and there's a line, a very distinct line on the floor. And that is as far as we can go. You look at the cages and they have spit guards, mm-hmm. you know, they have, a, they have like a little slot where they can put like a paper and a pencil or whatever they're doing that day for therapy in the cage with the guy. But other than that, it's like you stay behind this fucking line and you do not cross And how it. big is that cage? It's like a smaller than phone booth. Can they sit down? They can sit and they can stand. But I mean, it's that's pretty much it. Jeez. And so there, there's like a little like corner bench thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they show us the room and they say, here you go. And you meet the therapist that day. And there's chairs on this far wall and the cages line all other three corners or all other three sides of the wall. And here come the guys and they're chained together, hands and feet walking in a line and they're walking past us and we're like hey guys how's it going right on nice to see you <laughs> what the fuck are we doing you know like we didn't know what the fuck we were just doing. a bunch of howlies and stab jackets right exactly yeah. you know we're like what the fuck is this you know so we're just we're all um of the ilk that we need to center and be prepared for whatever you know and we don't know what we're gonna sing or what they're gonna want to do so they put all these guys in their cages and then they say okay you're, you're in you know they let us in we walk in and we're like, okay, well, what do we do now? You know, so they kind of introduce us as like, okay, well, these are, you know, three ladies from Alaska. And, you know, at that point it was like, the, you know, we didn't even have a, a concept of what to call ourselves or anything. And we started playing and, uh, you know, we played all of our lovely, you know, like Sean's got these super positive songs and, you know, Michelle and I have a little like sometimes darker twist. She's got some real poppy context to her stuff and, and I've got the more folky edge. And these guys were like, what the fuck? You know, they're like, I mean, seriously, they were like, I don't get it. You know, and they're, I mean, obviously a lot of them are, you know, African-American men. And they're, you know, a couple of Mexicans. We had a couple of white people. And they were just like up against the wall. Like, like, what the fuck? You Not know? impressed. Not impressed. And as we started like engaging them in between the songs and saying like, this is why we're here. You know, the point of us being here is to kind of like engage with you and talk to you about what you think is important. You know, like, what do you see as a positive of us being here? And all of a sudden they kind of started like leaning forward a little bit. And then we'd start singing and we'd start harmonizing and they would be like, all of a sudden now they're up on the fucking cage, like watching us and wanting to talk to us and ask us questions. And what transpired through that was them being able to talk to their therapists 
in a different way. So they were able to ask questions and then we would reframe them. Mm -hmm. So they were maybe a little more positive, you know, like, well, what the fuck do you think we're supposed to do? Like, you know, come to a therapy session with you and then go back to our hole for 23 hours and, you know, it's supposed to make sense or take our medication and it's all supposed to be good. And of course, that's what the rules are. But it was an opportunity for these guys in a really like now kind of clear and open space to talk with their therapist. So it was really kind of powerful. Then we asked them if they had any thing to offer. And one of the guys got up and started rapping. And I mean, they do this thing where because they can't, they don't have any like instruments, they just beat on their chest really fucking hard. Oh, damn. And it's just like, like this. Oh, God. I mean, I can't even do it. It would hurt me. You know, these guys are big, you know, strapping strong men and they would just like fucking beat their chest and beatbox and do this crazy shit. And it was amazing. I mean, they were saying the things that they needed to say to these people in the administration through their art. And it was so powerful. And they would be sitting in there like writing it while we were singing. You know, it was like an opportunity for them to kind of get out of their head and not feel imposed upon by, by their therapist or whoever. And so then they'd be sitting there writing and they'd be like, I got one, I got one, mm -hmm. you know, and then they'd like show or, or they'd draw these amazing pictures for us. So one it was of a them, visible transformation. Absolutely. Within a second. And then one guy was like, hey, I, you know, he's like, what's your name? We were like, well, we don't have a name. He's like, no, you do. You're called One Soul. And so we got to go back to the rest of our guys, you know, that were over playing blues jams with the blues band and the other arts room and be like, hey, guys, we got a name, you know, and they were all jealous because we got to go wear the staff jackets. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we're, like, we're so fucking weird. You know, I mean, we'd go back. So every time we'd go, my thing was like, we need a safe place to go afterwards. You know, like I want to make sure that we have a place to go decompress. Yeah. Be together eat good food, drink the wine, whatever we need to do to get ourselves like back down because it's heavy work, you know? And so we would always rent a house and that was our like safe space, you know? So we'd go back at, you know, at the end of the night and we'd kind of like decompress and some of us would talk, some of us would go to bed, some of us would cry, you know, we'd have whatever really nice meals together. And we'd talk about like how these men affected us and how this experience affected us. And it was always so funny because we were just jazzed, excited, like couldn't wait to go in the next day. Sometimes it was really difficult. Sometimes we were like broken from being in there. I mean, every day was different, but for years that was the, the trip. And I just, I couldn't wait to go back. And I actually haven't been back in, I think over a year now, I think it might be two years now. You know, one thing that I keep thinking is, is uh, and what I'm I'm picking up is that it was a symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. So you're in there, and you as the the musician are getting just as much as you hope that they're getting. Yeah. In return, absolutely, it was very copacetic in that way. I think that when some people hear this, they might think of the type of um, men or women who write letters to like serial killers mm -hmm. in jail just right. because, you know, it's this, you know, that's how they get off on it. Sure. Well, and I think a lot of people come at, at it with this good heart and good intention, you know, like they want to treat another human like a human and give them the opportunity because I mean, holy fuck, you can't imagine anything more depressing than a person who sits in prison waiting for someone to come visit them or get a fucking letter and never does. Mm -hmm. It's fucking horrifying. Mm -hmm. And that happens all the time. 
These people are completely forgotten, completely fucking left behind by their families, by people that they think love them. And it happens all the fucking time. And so for us, yes, it was very much an opportunity to be like, you're not an animal. You're a human and we see you that way. We see your heart. We see that you're full of good things. You are not left behind. And that was the absolute intention. And I mean, the weird, you know, caveat to all of that was that I had pretty recently, right before I was invited in, had started doing some really deep spiritual work in my own world, you know, and trying to kind of dig into myself and heal some really powerful wounds that had been running my life. And what I found out was that when I got in there, they had a fucking group that did exactly the same shit that I was doing here in Alaska. And it was a very like sort of like sequestered enclave of of healing people, you know, that were doing this work. And it's really deep, transformational, very cathartic work. And they had a men's group inside New Folsom that was doing exactly the same thing. And in fact, they just fucking released a movie about it. And it's amazing. And, you know, and so like they, there was not only the artistic, you know, reference and, and, um, you know, thing that we had that was alike, but we had this deep desire to heal and heal the wound within because it wasn't going to happen outside of ourselves. And so what I saw was men, especially in those groups were the leaders, you know, were the ones the the, the mentors for the guys out in the yard. And so, I mean, we had one guy that was literally a shot caller for a gang inside the prison. If he went out there and said, boom, whatever, they were, they did whatever he fucking said. And he would come in that room with us and he would sing me the most beautiful gospel songs you've ever fucking heard. And he would make me cry. And did, I, did that relationship start out like that or was, yes. did he come in there and he was like hard and then, no. okay. I mean, yes. I, okay. I take that back. They all came in a little hard. You know, we all came in a little hard because we didn't know what to expect. But as soon as that barrier or that, that sort of layer got peeled away, then the humanity was all that was left. And it was literally like, I met my fucking brothers mm-hmm. and I couldn't explain it any different than that. I mean, certainly there was some I connected with more than others. And my always my um, intention was to treat everyone the same, you know, and and never to like over connect, obviously, with a, a prisoner because that's not healthy. Yeah, I knew that boundary. Some didn't not in our group. Our group was always very great about that and great about communicating that even with them. Um, but the idea was more like what would happen inside this room with Uh, 14 to 20 guys would then transform and take, they would take it outside and they would walk out with this like pride and joy and knowledge. And it was transcending, which spreads. Yes. It was a great feeling. And then people on the yard would be like, yo, where you been, man? Like Mm -hmm. I want that. And they wanted to get into that room. And so it just kept growing and growing and that feeling. And like these guys that seemed, you know, so hardcore, we're starting to soften. And that is a very dangerous fucking thing in a place like that. Yeah. And so we would watch them just like you, much like a kid that goes from parent to parent in very different, you know, parental situations or a dog that goes from one situation to another. When you get them back after their week with pops or moms, they're very different. And it takes a minute for them to, you know, shift and settle into your world. And sometimes that can be pretty tumultuous. Same, same. Yeah. You know, they came in and they were allowed to like take their armor off 
be their true holy selves. You know, like it was a very holy experience. And I'm not a religious person. Mm -hmm. It was a holy experience. And then they would have to put that mask back on and go back out there. Because if they went out there all, you know, soft and sweet, they'd probably get shaked yeah. or whatever the fuck, you know, however that works out. But over time, they were able to walk with that light and carry that light around. And that's what attracted the others that wanted to learn from them. And they became extremely powerful mentors. And I do believe in that transformation outside and inside. I've just never seen it um, so much mm -hmm. outside as I have inside. You know, like it was, it almost felt easier for me because they'd been through hell. They weren't hiding from it. No. You know, most There's of the no people you to. meet out here are just like, oh, no, that's not real. I blah, 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 blah. And everybody fucking pretends they're so happy and life's so great when really they're like shattered little, you know, kids inside. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the reality of most hum human beings yeah. today. You know, you keep alluding to, you know, this familiarity with, you know, say the prison system mm -hmm. or even like perceivably like broken mm -hmm. people, things like, you know, wounds that need to be healed. Mm -hmm. What is that? Where does that come from? Uh, my just own experience. You know, I grew up in a very uh, intensely dysfunctional family that had a lot of uh, ancestral wounds of its own. And I didn't really know what that meant until I got much older. But my um, I had three uncles that died of heroin overdoses, you know, as you know, by the time I was in my early 20s. Um, and then my cousin, who was... Um, kind of, I hoped kind of the saving grace of that male family line in my family ended up committing murder and going to prison and then getting out and going back and going, you know, he became a victim of that system of, he became a victim of his own self. And, um, he ended up killing himself a couple of years ago, you know? And so, and I, and I fought really hard for him, mm -hmm. you know, to, kind of like wake up and come out of that. But what I realize is that we can only do that for ourselves. Like I can talk to Aurora and I can tell her all, all the shit I want to say all day, but it's up to her, you know, it's up to me to go and do the work. And so my choice was to go and do the work. And when I found a place in Alaska that um, I resonated with, I started working with them and I started realizing like, holy shit, my wounds are deep. And if I don't do something now, I'm going to die, you know, was basically like where I was at. And I had a young daughter and I wanted to be better. I wanted to be better for the world, you know, because I know now that if I heal myself, I do the world a service. Yeah. Shout out to White Raven Center. Shout out. About it. Yeah. Well, and, and can you explain that? Workers. Yeah. So White Raven Center is a, a healing center here in town that mm -hmm. um, kind of started with uh traditional healing practices right so like you know because yeah, didn't marianne do some of her work uh, she's a licensed professional therapist but she did um, yeah. a number of her first years um up in the villages yeah so and her husband floyd is from metlakatla mm -hmm. medicine man from there um you know and he came from a lot of generational wounds uh, vietnam vet you know there was a lot of things to I heal there vietnam vet. yep alcoholism you know all of that um so the it it comes down to basically like healing the cellular wounds, you know, going to the deepest, deepest level, getting out of the mind, letting that be its own thing because the mind is just ego and it's going to always fuck us. 
And so we just go in where the feeling is and we feel all the way through it. And it's done with witness and it's done in a safe way to where um, no matter how fucking scary it is to you and no matter how dark it is, you can come out of that in a really, really light place. And basically um, transmuting energy. You for know, people I, that need more specific, sorry. Do, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just about to ask. It's pretty heavy fucking shit, but no, she tried really. to explain it to me forever, and I was like, I don't fucking understand what this means. But <laughs> yeah, then I went, better. and uh, but yeah, so there's like they do a lot of 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 breathing exercises, and I didn't believe in any of this shit before. I'm not this kind of person. I'm not into this sort <laughs> yeah. of thing. But I went in. Um, you lay on the ground. They cover your eyes, so it's dark. Um, so you're sort of, you know, that, that channel of experience, like that you are in a room, whatever, where, where you are in present time is blocked out and they do a ton of breathing exercises and sort of sure as shit. Like if you have an identifiable sort of thing in your life that you need to work on, you're able to channel that anger. They got heavy bags and baseball bats. If you need to beat the fuck out of something, then you can, if you need to cry and scream, then that's fine. Like, um, just whatever that experience looks like. If you, you need to have the experience of just being completely numb, yeah, you can have that too. Yeah. So I was like, what the fuck just happened to me? Because I came out of this, like I'm laying on the ground and I'm done with this whole thing. And I was like, I feel like I'm on ecstasy. What is this? That just how, how long was the process or how long was the class or? We do, it's like 90 minute sessions, I guess, mm -hmm. normally. So you know, you lay on the ground and you're doing this breathing. And so I'm like, so my own experience, because I think this is helpful to people that are a little more cynical like me, like I'm laying on the ground and I'm moving my, I'm, you know, my knees are bent and I'm like moving them back and forth like windshield wipers. And I'm doing this really deep, heavy breathing. And I'm like, this is fucking ridiculous. What is the point of all this shit? I feel like I'm going to pass out. I look fucking ridiculous. I didn't, I didn't understand the point of any of it. And suddenly I was like in deep and tremendous pain and was sobbing my heart out. And I didn't know what this was directed at or where it was coming from. Like I don't come from the kinds of generational trauma or, you know, childhood experiences that I could point to to explain why this was happening, but I did feel it happen. And when all that was over, when I was like laying on the ground is when I was like, I, this is, this is what, this is what MDMA feels like to me. So, whoa, what the fuck is going on? So I, I had to ask a lot of questions about like, what, what the fuck is this? The, you know, the work, this is what mm -hmm. Melissa's referring to when she says the work. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's in similar to like the, the, the work that they're doing with MT, MDMA, I think in, um, people that have PTSD is that if you're able to revisit these, if they are specific issues for you, you know, um, or if for me, it's sort of more general, I don't know where any of that comes from, but if you're able to revisit it in like an area that's safe and you have witness and, um, and you, and you come out of that and you carry that forward in your life and it sticks. I, I mentioned like they're doing, uh, phase three trials now, I think with the FDA using, using FDA has approved phase three trials, excuse me, using MDMA to treat PTSD in soldiers. And it is having startling effects like that that you know cognitive behavior therapy has never had before um traditional ssris have not had before and so i think it's something pretty similar and i was able to they pointed me to some some scientific papers um one of which is called the body keeps the score that was explaining like what is the physiological reaction that's happening in my body right now so i don't know did it point to anything yeah well it would be difficult to summarize the guy wrote a book i can't remember what his name is but it's called the body keeps the score okay i just read the paper and i was like okay i sort of get what this means you know um 
but about about how trauma is is stored in your body. And yeah. when you you do this for whatever fucking reason, I don't really get why this works, but um those exercises are able to like you, you just channel those things, but you're in a safe environment to revisit them. And then you walk away from that without carrying those repeated patterns where you're living your whole life, you well, know, on sort of on autopilot. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. the idea is basically like in a traumatic situation we leave our body, mm -hmm. you know, so we become autopilot, right? You know, we're in a traumatic situation. You hear this a lot with people who have been, you know, serial raped, you know, or whatever, you know, or, you know, repeatedly, you know, had this abuse forced upon them. They leave their body, right? They, they have to, in order to survive, mm -hmm. in order to physically stay alive, they can't be there emotionally. So that part of us leaves, but that, Trauma is still stored and our cells store everything. So what the breath work does is it, it unlocks that. It's like a kind of a holotropic breathing where you just start really breathing heavy, 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 heavy until your hands kind of start going numb and your lips get quivery and your feet start to move. And all of a sudden your body starts shaking and you're like, what the fuck? And, and you're not in your head anymore. Mm -hmm. You're fully in your body, which most people aren't. Yeah, never. <laughs> Most people just walk around like, doo, 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 you know. Yeah, I feel like I'm in my head 100% of the time. Yeah, exactly. You are. Well, I, I so, am too. I mean, that's, so what this yeah. work offers is the witness, you know, to be your head. So when and can you, you start, explain that, the witness? So yeah, I've a, heard that a few yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. There are so, other people in the room. There's other okay, people in the okay. room. And so you either have one or, you know, two facilitators or often there's a workshop environment where you've got, you know, 16 other people in the room. And the the breath and and like like she said you know you got this kind of mask over your face to sort of take that sensory piece out of the picture and then the witness sort of plays the part of your head so that you don't have to do that and they're constantly pushing and what i used to visualize it and this is what i used to say to the guys in the prison i'd be like imagine swallowing your brain down into your heart you know like just imagine it then get it out of there. Like, what would it feel like if you operated from that place instead of this place? You'd do things differently. You wouldn't be up here, like, calculated and, mm -hmm. you know, thinking so much. You'd be coming from this very, like, human place, you yeah. know, instead of the robot mind or whatever, the, or the monkey mind or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is that's hurt us in our lifetimes has been the result of other people. And other people need to be there when you heal from that, mm -hmm. I think is Well, and the idea, too, that idea. like as a, as a child, like I said, I grew up, you know, in Kasilov and I didn't I grew up in the woods. I didn't have a lot of people around me. And so when I was going through trauma and my own shit, I would go and scream at a tree or I would go, you know, cry at a river or whatever. And I never really moved the energy because there wasn't another like entity involved, you know, that could say, oh, I see what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it for the witness is validating your experience, allowing you to have it, because what we're told often as children and, and especially people who are being traumatized by someone or victimized by someone is that you're not feeling that and it's not okay to be mad about it. And it's not okay. You should just shut up. You shouldn't cry about it. You're being a pussy. You're being a wimp. Why are you, you know, what's the fucking problem? Mm -hmm. And so the witness is the validator. The witness is, I see I see you. I see you. I see that you're terrified right now. I see that you are crying right now. I see that you are so sad and I'm still here. When was the first time that you experienced this, that you went through 
you know, your first session? I went, uh, I started going when I was 26, I think. And, um, Jesus, I had friends that were, yeah, I had friends that were, um, were you skeptical as well? Not really. You, you thought I that was this was going to work. That and, point. You know, okay. I, I've always been kind of that curious. So in Aurora's podcast, mm -hmm. you talk about growing up in an atmosphere of violence and what that does to a person. Yeah. Um, how it affects their, their maturation and their ability to trust. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like this might be a little bit of a cross section yeah, here. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I was talking about when I ended that podcast is that if people who have grown up in trauma who are more likely to have like fear reactions, even when they don't need to be afraid mm -hmm. and, and trust issues and, and all that kind of stuff. If they can learn where they are safe, then the other things that are really deeply rooted in the amygdala, where all of that stuff comes from, where the seat of our instincts are empathy, perception, mm -hmm. loyalty, that kind of stuff, which I think is pretty clear because like you embody all of those characteristics. <laughs> so thank you. Bobby. I don't know. I don't know if that's what you were going for, but I've, it, it's occurred to me before that you might be one of the clearest examples of like, you can come through a bunch of shit. And if you do, just do the work, to use mm -hmm. your phrase. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you're able to um, to turn that into something really profound. I was thinking about it on the way over here. I was going to ask if there's ever, you know, you go through a lot of garbage and, and obviously those are not pleasant memories, but are there ever times that, that maybe in a, some weird way you're grateful for that because maybe it's mm -hmm. given you your creativity and your, your empathy? and um, you know. Yeah, I mean, I would say absolutely. And I'd say probably all of it. I mean, there's certainly, you know, memories that stick out more than others. But I think like to go back to what you're saying, like I, I that was the realization I had mm -hmm. when I started doing the work as it's called and that's the movie that you should actually you know, I was gonna get ask, on itunes it's that's called the, the name work. of that film it's the name about of the, the film guys, the in, guys okay. in Folsom doing this work. work that's incredible um is that i realized like i was in a relationship with a partner that um you know heavily used alcohol which it wasn't like i didn't either but we had different ways of using it and um he triggered in me a fear response that was so terrifying, not because he was a mean person. He was a very kind man. He was a very loving man, but I felt abandoned by him. And that triggered in me this like response that was so scared and would become then uh, really aggressive in to, to protect myself. Mm -hmm. And it was like, it was a really weird realization. Like I, you know, I, I knew that I didn't like that, you know, his behavior. I knew that I liked that. I didn't like that he didn't come home or I knew that I didn't, you know, like that he got drunk and did these things or, you know, I couldn't communicate with him, but I didn't realize that what it actually did was shot me back to my childhood self that was laying in bed, often alone, waiting for my parents to come home wasted and I knew they were going to be drunk and I had to go to school the next day. So how long was this going to take and what kind of condition they were going to be in and who was going to punch who and what the fuck. And that was a terrifying thing, mm -hmm. but I had never like connected the two that I now, not only was I reliving it, but I was reliving it in my own relationship. Yeah. And so it was very valuable to me to speak truth to that and say to my partner, like, look, this is what it is. I'm not just being a bitch because you didn't come home last night. I'm 
really, really upset because what it's hap- what's happening is it's triggering this response in me that thinks it's still happening, mm-hmm. thinks I'm still waiting for my dad to punch my mom in the face, you know, that thinks I'm still waiting for, you know, shit to go down and for someone to start crying and apologizing and me go to school really tired and all this shit, mm-hmm. even though that wasn't what was happening. Yeah. But it, my body didn't know that. And what happens is just like, you know, athletes that train and put themselves in, in these positions where they're doing the action of what they do in sports, they're not actually doing it, but their mind doesn't know that. It's the exact same thing with trauma. It's, the, it's a muscle memory, right? Yeah. Yes. And your mind doesn't know, your body doesn't know that that isn't happening to you. Yeah. And that's why that fear of people who have been violently attacked or raped or whatever, like they don't walk around like normal people. They're shell shocked. They are Mm -hmm. absolutely shell shocked. That's PTSD Mm -hmm. to the core. Mm -hmm. So we have a whole nation, a whole world of people walking around with fucking PTSD. We are a walking... Undiagnosed PTSD. Undiagnosed. And, And some very diagnosed. Yeah. And I didn't know that I had that. And then mistreated if it is diagnosed. Absolutely. Like, so here's the alternative. You know, you can go do some drugs and dumb it down and become, you know, a fucking mind fucked human being zombie. Or you can do the work and become a a self-realized happy person in the world that's going to go through shit and it's going to be okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Like you're going to be confronted with more shit in your life. It's not like, oh, you clear up all that crap and now life is fucking rosy and perfect. It never ends. I guess the the beautiful part and the scary part is that once you decide to go down that road, it doesn't stop. Like you are going to forever learn more about yourself and more about what you're capable of. You know, let me see. How do I how do I want to phrase this? Because I feel like this... This actually comes from a personal place for me, mm-hmm. this question. So I know that you've gone through a lot of trauma and there are certain things that as an adult, you look back on at the people who raised you and you make a conscious effort of, of saying to yourself, this attribute of that person, of this lineage dies with them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I will not carry it on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you as a parent now have made a conscious effort not to carry on. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think both of these successfully ladies can, because yeah. can say that. I mean, well, we yeah. don't, you know, I mean, yes, I would say successfully and, and maybe not so successfully. I mean, I, we never know. We're not the, um, you know, orchestrator of our children's experience. You know, the, we do the best we can. And I know that now. Like, I know I heard that from my mother as a kid and I thought what the fuck you know like or I heard that from my dad and you know and I was like what the fuck heard and I know now dad. that he was doing his best okay you know mm-hmm. and I think wow well, that wasn't very good sometimes you know like <laughs> Jesus Christ sucked. you know well you know and I mean <laughs> you that's real better. like my best has sucked Which, I know that yeah you know like I know that now. for everybody I, I have I have felt that you know own inner like shame of like wow I could have done better but yeah, I, um, that is why I started doing the work was because I had a daughter that I wanted to live in a free world of her own, you know, her own free world to create her own life, make her own decisions, have her own relationships and not continue the thread. And I don't know that that's 
a real thing. You know, I don't know if I have any control over that. I'm not, I, I know I don't have any control over that actually, because she's a free will person on the planet. Well, how much are you like your parents? <laughs> I don't know. You should ask my mom. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, you told me you got the big and loud from your dad. I got the big and loud from my dad. I got the kind of like, um, angsty and very like pointed and, um, aggressive kind of uh, behavior from my mom, I think. But you well, know. I guess what I'm getting at is, is I think we all have violent thoughts and oh, yeah. potentially violent tendencies. Yeah. The difference is actually acting on those sure. tendencies. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so if you're talking like, well, um, I caught myself in those places Okay. before where I was, you know, like I was in a relationship where he would, you know, sort of push my buttons and, and get me really upset to the point where I would get physical and it wasn't like I'd punch or anything, but like I would push and, and I could see where that was going. I knew the end of that story. Mm -hmm. And did you tell yourself that it's oh, just a push? It's just a push. And then, no. okay. You said this is I was still hitting. And, okay. Okay. Because okay. I knew what I was capable of. Okay. And I think that that's something that I, and that may be like a cognitive thing and that may be a developmental thing. You know, I think um, oftentimes, and we've talked about this too, where people, you know, who are extremely traumatized, they don't develop that, you know, sort of frontal cortex, like yeah. my, my actions have this consequence. Mm -hmm. If I push you, you fall down. Like they don't see that. Like I had that, but that's an empathetic response or in a sympathetic response to what I do hurts you. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hurt someone. So I had that somewhere in me. I think people who are experiencing like severe mental illness or so people, people who um, maybe don't have that response and don't know if I point this gun at you and I shoot you, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. Like they don't have that thought. Because well, they're living from a place of like, what do I do to protect myself in this exact moment? Well, and they're also like living outside of their body again. Yeah. They're not present. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm present with you, I can't shoot you yeah. unless I'm, <laughs> you know, like really fucking fucked up, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. like I can't do that to you. So if I'm in living in fear response, I'm not in my body. I'm not present with you. So then what I do to you is simply out of self-defense. And it, this has been the argument that's been created, you know, throughout our judicial system and you know, passed down through generations and generations is I hit you because you did that. Yeah. An eye for an eye. Yeah. Right. You made me do you that. You made me do that. Mm -hmm. You make me happy. You make me sad. Well, where's the fucking responsibility in that? Yeah. Where is your sacred sovereign self in that person? And how are you? Yeah. And how are you empowering another by acting that way? And how you does, know? how does that actually permeate a society? Deeply. Exactly. Yeah, it has. And we're seeing that. So I guess, you know, going back to your question, like as far as like what I've tried to do for my daughter is empower her. It's what I do with my clients when I'm working on their bodies. It's what I do through the music. It's what I do with my friends. My whole thing is you are responsible for you. No one else can make you sad, make you happy, make you fucking crazy, make you want to kill yourself. None of that. That's all you. And this is a literal thing that I do often. And this is one thing that I was taught in White Raven was like, call back all of your parts, mm -hmm. like call them all back, like sit with yourself for a second and think, okay, where was I today? Just in my day, I went to the grocery store. I went to the gas station. I went to work. I went, da, da, da. did I leave part of myself there? 
Did I go to the grocery store and did I get pissed off at somebody because I was in line and they were being fucking slow and I didn't like it? I'm saying this from my own experience today. Yeah. So I'm going to go back <laughs> to that grocery store experience and I'm going to call myself back and be like, you know what? I didn't need to stay there. I don't need to keep repeating that. That's the drama, right? Mm -hmm. We want to go, we want to have a story to tell our friends when we get over. Oh, oh my God, I went to the fucking grocery store and this bitch was fucking picking so long. Blah, blah, blah. We left a part of ourselves there. Mm -hmm. That's a very simple example. The more complex example is we go to work and we work in a complex environment with a lot of different people and we're dealing with all this different shit and we leave a part of ourselves there. We come home, we take it out on our partner mm -hmm. and we're not in our body. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, like calling yourself back to yourself is an empowering piece of the work. It's the most empowering piece of the work, because often when you're sitting with yourself, you realize, oh, that can't affect me. Mm. That asshole isn't my problem. It's like bringing yeah. yourself back to reality. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, I, I sort of see it as this vacuum, you know, like coming back into my heart, you know, again, like where I swallow my brain and my, everything comes back to the center of yourself. That is the power source. You know, go to the Heart Math Institute website and check it out. It's fucking incredible work they're doing. And heart like, math? Heart math. Okay. And it's all about, you know, like our frequency and how we actually affect and change the situations uh, by the way that we feel. Mm -hmm. And it's all coming from here. It's not coming from here. Yes, yeah. there are extremely intelligent and brilliant people on this planet. But I'm going to tell you, the most brilliant ones have a heart. Yeah. And they speak from that place with their intelligence and with all of their wisdom intact. They don't just come from this, you know, I mean, we see it all the time. The brain is the ego. The head is the ego. When you're operating from the ego, you are looking for a response from another person. You're listening so you can speak. Yeah. And you want to be validated. Mm -hmm. If that person isn't validating you, then they're a fucking asshole and they don't deserve to be in your world. Mm-hmm. And they're outsiders and they're outliers. But if you're literally in your body, that person is present. That person is a person. You're a person. You're a person. You don't affect me. Like your action isn't going to hurt me. I mean, yes, you could physically hurt me. And that's part of the dichotomy, I think, of the whole thing, right? And the question is, well, yeah, I mean, we could be sitting in this room and all of a sudden you could come over and stab me or I could stab you. That would be a shit show, right? That would be the end of this program. Yeah, it'd be one hell of a <laughs> end of a podcast. <laughs> we just stab each other. <laughs> but I think that often, more often than not, if you have a bunch of present people in the room, that's not how the shit goes down. Yeah. It ends up being a really powerful and enlightening and, and uh, empowering experience. Mm -hmm. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by Cody Liska and Dustin H. James for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats.